I have been blessed with a long life, nearing my centennial year. Born in 1922 when the thunder of the guns of the First World War still echoed, I have witnessed many changes, now accelerating more rapidly than ever. I have learned it is not enough to be a joyous exile as we Christians often feel we are in a secular society, but also a worldly Christian in the sense in which Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined the term. Having responsibilities and stewardship in this world, as well as preparing for the life to come, this double identity enables us to be constantly learning new things as our horizons are increasingly enlarged. Welcome to the These Days Podcast. This is Ben and Dwayne. Hello. Coming at you from the spare room, and it is cozy. Are, oh, do I'll you say. feel cozy? I feel yeah, cozy. Yeah, I am, especially after yeah. coming in from uh, the ice apocalypse on the Yeah, there's, it's the Arctic tundra outside. Yes. In yes. fact, it took us, it was quite an ordeal getting to the spare room, yes. wasn't it? It's about, yes, it was. It's about 30 feet from your house to the well, spare room. Well, I'd say closer to 40 or 50. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, credit yeah. where credit yeah. is due. Yeah. come on. 40 yeah. or 50 feet. Yeah. And uh, it was... <laughs> it was quite the adventure trying to get across the frozen wasteland of your backyard. Yes, in it fact, was. Um, well, I, you don't want to slip and fall on your tailbone and go sliding off into the woods because that's, that's about a, 50 feet the other way. That's true, and it's all downhill. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We the things we go through for our listeners. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, we, uh, we, we won't hear that in another <laughs> podcast. Wow, we really? Uh, yeah, we really just we're passionate about Christian history to the point where we risk life and limb to come record new episodes for you guys. Mm-hmm. I hope that you will um, e- be equally passionate in your listening, sharing of the podcast yes. with your friends and family, oh, yes. and yes. also perhaps even supporting us on Patreon yeah. at yeah. Patreon.com/slash. Mm-hmm. We'll be going now yep. with no apostrophe. You may want to record some conversations with your friends as you're walking down the street and say, "You know where I heard this? I heard this on the These Days yeah. podcast." Exactly. Yeah. Good. Yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, with that in mind, with that being said. Um, Why don't you lead us into today's episode? Well, this is one that uh, have we've done a living person before. Yeah, we did Bono. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bono and Jim Houston. <laughs> is that is that the only two living people we've done? Uh, well, yes, but we're doing Jim today. Wow. Yeah. 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 And. and uh, James M. Houston, uh, Dr. James M. Houston, a friend of mine. If you've listened to this podcast, if you've heard me talk, you've heard me reference this man. Very important in my life. But I thought we should do a podcast on him because he has a very interesting life. Um, full disclosure, I've been his, he's been my friend f- for 40 years. You could say he's been my mentor for 40 years, uh, one of them. Uh, but he's 101, just turned 101 two months ago. That's amazing. Yeah, very amazing. And he's still got his sharp mind. And um, in fact, at the end of the podcast, I'll tell you how you can uh, find that out and how you can read his blog and so forth. But um, I visited him last year, uh, at, at just after he turned 100. 
Oh wow! Yeah, and so that's uh, that. That's amazing. We didn't know if he'd make it to the 101, but he sure has, and he's still writing things out, and still, you can read uh, his thoughts. That's amazing. But um, I just want to uh, tell you about the, the time I, time I met him when I was in uh, when I went to Vancouver to interview him for an oral history. Because he was friends with someone whom you may have heard me talk about before, Saint <laughs> Jack. Good old uh, Saint Jack. Yeah. So uh, and and he, you know, they they worked together. I mean, they 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 were involved in uh, meetings together while uh, Houston was in Oxford. We'll get to all that, but uh, just to sort of give you the flavor of who Jim is, I walk into his condo, which is. Uh, up uh, on one of the top stories of this high-rise building overlooking Granville uh, Island in Vancouver, BC. Mm-hmm. And it's a sunny day, which is rare there. Right. But you can see the mountain is amazing. He takes me out in his veranda and we go out there. He said, let me make some tea. And I go back in and sit down <laughs> and it's got, it just looks like an Oxford professor you'd expect. You got stacks of books everywhere, but they're not disorganized. Sure. They're all, they all seem to be organized in certain areas. And, and he's bringing in a friend to fix his laptop because at, a, at 96 years old, he's already, the, he knows that his laptop's broken and he knows it needs to be fixed. I mean, he, He's quite tech savvy. Sure. Yeah. So he, he tried to get J.I. Packer to use email one time, and Packer said, No, I don't need to do that. Pa- but Packer he, never had an email. No, he didn't want to do that. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Jim told me that, but also I heard that from Packer. And if you don't know <clears throat> uh, who J.I. Packer yeah. is, uh, a great Canadian, British Canadian theologian of the 20th century. Yes. Probably wrote, one of the greatest. Wrote, yeah, yeah. Wrote uh, one of the most influential books, at least in yes. Protestant yes. Christianity That's right. of the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. Called Knowing yeah. God. Knowing God. Yeah. And they were both professors at the same place, right? Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, in 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 the last part of their lives, yeah, the, they, they well, the last forty years, thirty years. Um. So, uh. But, you know, what's interesting about Jim is he's his life has spanned most of the twentieth century from nineteen twenty two on, and you know to present. So the last hundred years, but it includes uh, in, interactions with, and we're not going to have time in the podcast to say everybody, but the who's who of Christendom, uh, in in the last century. And so that's kind of why I thought we ought to do this because, uh, you know, it it's it's part of what we do. We're trying to talk about the story of uh, where we were then and how we got here, right? And and help us understand that uh, we're not the first ones to go through some of the things we go through. And Jim has been a great uh, resource for me in realizing, hey, you're not the first to deal with this. The, the, there is a way to walk through this, that kind of thing, sure. in, in various situations. But his life goal was to be not only a joyous exile, which he has a book about that, right. a sort of a, a, a autobiography, a spiritual autobiography, but also, as Bonhoeffer said, a worldly Christian. And that doesn't mean worldliness. It means not, not in the like uh, King James biblical sense of like no, don't be worldly. That's right. Yeah. It's about not panicking. Uh, as Bonhoeffer didn't, uh, but not panicking, but being involved or being engaged, being aware of what's going on in the world around you, mm-hmm. and uh, living the life of Jesus in the midst of that world. That's that's what he wanted to do. So, um, but let me just start with his early life. His early life, he was born in um, Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, he still has a strong, strong Scottish accent. Nice. If he wasn't my friend, I would have attempted it. Yeah, then. please. So don't. you're very, you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 strong and it's fair it's great. Listeners. It's it's so it's nice to listen to. Oh, I'm sure yeah. that's Scottish burr. Yeah. In fact, I've got a, a tape of his from that interview. I should have. I have a, I have a friend from yeah. Cambridge who lives in Portland who said. Um, 
who says that she never thinks about herself as having an English accent or never thought of herself as having an accent until she moved to America. And she said, you know, I think I speak with a stronger accent while I'm now that I'm here uh, than when I was there. That's great. That's funny. <laughs> Uh, well, he was born in uh, 1922, November 21st. Uh, I think Lewis's birthday is around that time. I know his, you know, his, his death is, but it's right. It's in November, um, but num- many years before. But uh, he was raised uh, after that in La Mancha, Spain, until he was eight years oh, old. Oh, cool! By Scottish missionaries mm-hmm. who married extremely late for those days. His dad was uh, 45, and his mom was uh, 40, and um, of course, they don't say that in Britain. They say my mother and father. Right, so sure. They're not that familiar. But he really went through a time of being fairly neglected, he felt. And because they were off doing missionary work and, and you know, they were older and they were they had their lives and so forth. And and uh, he uh, he was the only son, he was the oldest child, but the only son, two, do- two uh, sisters uh, behind him. Uh, but he gives has this memory. Uh, he went to visit in 2017, just before I had that encounter with him where we did that interview. Um, he had been to Spain, back to La Mancha, and seen his old haunts, as he says. Okay. And he says, as a small child of uh, five years old with my little dog lying breathlessly on the cool tiles of the floor under the couch uh, and thinking, yes, we're alone in the world, my dog and I. Wow. So this is a five-year-old. Now. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so he felt, you know, That's he a, felt a great deal of loneliness. And, it, and it, it, it translated into extreme shyness. Sure. I mean, that's a pretty existential five-year-old. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And this is what? 1927. Right. Yeah. So he's extremely shy and reserved. In fact, he says uh, in his memoirs, which we'll be quoting a few times here, he says, like me, many have suffered from the paralysis of low self-esteem. Hmm. And that comes from those times. But well, here's what he says he learned about that. This is this guy comes up with, you know, one-line explanations of a lot of stuff when you ask him, uh, I, I need to understand this certain problem or this certain issue in my life. He said this, he said, I have also learned that fear is the basic emotion that affects all our human behavior. Hmm. Transparency is a strong antidote to that fear, opening the heart to receive and give love. Wow. In other words, being open and being transparent is a, is a way to get over our fears. So, um, and uh, so when he was eight and a half, he went back to Edinburgh because his mom needed medical attention, and uh, that's where he stayed. He wound up getting a degree at University of Edinburgh. And then in uh, 1945, he goes into doctoral studies at uh, the University of Oxford. And he, the reason for that is because he had been a, he was the first geographer at like 25 years old. He got his PhD in geography first. Then he got uh, his degree in the history of ideas, which is. <laughs> That's pretty cool to be able to say. <laughs> yes. Which is how he translated over, uh, yeah. you know, to Christian So he was a theology. geographer first. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In fact, he was the first geographer appointed to be uh, one of the two regional planning authorities uh, in Britain. Wow. And uh, so. After the war, then his job was to relocate people oh, geographically to, to sort that out. Okay, because so like the, the reason crisis the reason for that is that he'd been trained during his geography work to be an intelligence officer in the RAF. That's how his professor had trained him for. Okay, but uh, by that time the the war was winding down. But also he was uh, grade three or something like that. Uh, but he was he's sort of in a third level, which meant he couldn't go into combat. He couldn't go into the military. Oh, interesting. And I'm not sure why that is. 
Uh, my dad couldn't go in the military because he had flat feet. Right. And we, yeah. we called that 4F, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah, so yeah. he, um, anyway, he was a, he was a, a planner. That's, he said, he says that's where the whole idea of city planning started. I, I don't know. I, I, is, is with the post-World War II English yes, society. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But then this is sort of telling too, that business about being lonely and you know the oldest and stuff, I guess, had something to do with it. But he also was closest to one of his sisters. And he, he said, uh, I lost my sister because she was called to Bletchley Park to work on the Enigma program. Oh, wow. Yeah, with Turing. Yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a you know, connection with a famous situation in the 20th century. Wow. I mean, cracked the German code. I wonder when, yeah. I wonder when he found out that she was at Bletchley Park because they, the official secrets act, like people, people didn't say that until like yes. decades later. Sometimes. Well, he didn't, well, it, he, what he says here is she was sworn, he says this in his memoir, she, he, she was sworn to secrecy for 30 years. Wow. And, and the family didn't really know what she would have been doing during the war. Wow. But she was sworn to secrecy. In fact, Houston's speculation is she never married. And his speculation is is that the reason for that is she couldn't share what was really going on with her with somebody she was... Interesting. Yeah, married to. So And she assumed that wouldn't work. At least that's how he, he sorted it out. But, she, but he, later he found out she was in decoding clerk in Hut 6. Huh. Isn't that weird? That is so That's pretty crazy. But uh, what's crazy too is that so he's 25 when he gets his he starts his PhD work he gets his PhD at like 47 uh, 27 so in 47 and he starts working immediately at Hartford College he calls it Hartford College okay uh, you know like Maudlin spelled magna ma, uh, Magdalene, Magdalene yeah. yeah so well, I mean that's how we would say if we didn't know how it's pronounced yeah but and, he he becomes the bursar which is the guy that runs the funds for the faculty uh huh. At, you know, in his mid twenties. Wow, it's crazy. I mean, that, talk about a high flyer and quick. But that's where he met C.S. Lewis from forty-seven to uh, fifty-four, uh, before Lewis went to Cambridge. Uh, uh, Jim was in, involved in several things. He knew he uh, that crossed paths with Lewis. He also crossed paths with, paths with the Inklings. Yeah, uh, he was a, a Plymouth Brethren. Because his family was Plymouth Brethren, that's they were missionaries for the Plymouth Brethren. Okay. But in those days, that was a, a, a deeply, deeply conservative, very strong, don't associate with other groups besides us kind of evangelical sure, yeah, it group. Was, it was very, very fundamentalist close. group. Yeah. And um, you know, I actually ha- hesitate to use the word fundamentalist because it's changed in its meaning today from what it meant then. But strong anyway in that direction. But but uh, he he. Uh, Asked, he was asked by several historic uh, Christian scholars, which you know many people today don't really know, so it's no sense name dropping. But uh, scholars in the U.S. asked him to introduce them to Lewis. Well, Lewis was still alive. Yeah, because Houston came over in '61 to '63. Okay, when Lewis was still alive, he died in '63. Uh, but he came over to uh, Toronto to be a teacher there. Huh. But the. Um, but but the, the stories of his his work with or his encounters with Lewis and he knew Hugo Dyson and uh, Gervais uh, Matthew some, several of the the Inklings who would gather in Houston where he, the house that Houston shared with uh, Nicholas Zernoff who was the head of the uh, Orthodox Church okay. in England but he was is he was in he he'd come up to Oxford and needed a place to live so he rented an apartment and he had Houston share that with him and Houston. Because Houston wasn't married at this point, 
And he, um, so he, they had a potluck in their house on Saturday nights, which involved not just inkling men, but it involved several women from uh, several of the colleges, scholars. Uh, and they would do the same thing as they did in the Inklings. They would read papers and they interact. Uh, he's got some crazy stories about Lewis interacting with some, uh, some people, uh, one, one legal scholar especially, about, uh, about natural law. Nice. Uh, but he also, because of this, was able to go to Lewis uh, when he knew Lewis was going to be leaving. Uh, the way Houston puts it, he goes, I knew that uh, Lewis was going to be leaving and going to Cambridge in 1953, uh, in the 19, end of 1953, and I knew that I was getting married, so I probably wouldn't be traveling over there. So he said, I went to him and said, please tell me what you've been trying to say all along. Yeah. And I've told you the story on, on the podcast. I, I think you remember. have once or twice, yeah. but go for it. But but he, yeah, his, Lewis said, immediately said, oh, I've been fighting against uh, reductionism. Yeah. The reductionism of the value of human being, the reductionism of the value of creation and reduction of the value of all things, uh, you know, of truth. And uh, he referenced a couple of his books that were particularly um Pointed toward that, including the one he had just written, which was called "Till We Have Faces." Yeah. So, anyway, that those those are some you know uh, cross paths in again with some pretty well known people in the 20th century. Then he came over in the late 60s, and in 1970 he came over to North America again, and he was back and forth a little bit, I think. Uh, but he helped found the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, in Washington D.C. He was co-founder with that. He mentored as a process. They, that was it was a it was a group meant to mentor people and disciple people uh, in government or wherever they were from. But that's why they housed it in D.C. was people in government and many of the Christian senators and representatives and people like that came to him. Uh, one of whom was named Charles Colson. He discipled Charles Colson after he had yeah. And come for to people faith. who don't know who Charles Colson is, uh, Watergate fame. Yeah, so he was yeah. part of the Watergate scandal yeah. with in the Nixon administration. He was then, he was the first to confess that he was guilty. Yeah, and then in yeah. prison he had a pretty radical uh, kind of change of heart yeah. um, and became a leader in the evangelical global evangelical yeah. church, but also um, uh, was founded a prison fellowship, right? Yep, prison yeah. fellowship. He, yeah, he actually ministry. became a believer just yeah. before he went to prison. Yeah. Um, and that's when Houston started having a relationship with him. And I suppose while he was in prison, too. Yeah. He, he also was a founder of the National Prayer Breakfast that's still going on in D.C. And I don't remember if I told this story. Did I tell a story about the Lebanese diplomat they sat next to at the one of the first uh, prayer breakfasts? I think I vaguely remember this one, but well, go ahead. Because, you know, this is sort of, this is sort of you know, Good word for us today with all the politics flying around, and I'm not going to mention any more than that, but we are in 2024. Uh, uh, he sits next to a Lebanese diplomat, and they're talking about, uh, you know, what, what brings you here? And he says, well, I'm a Christian. And uh, he says, or he says, I, I'm in Christ, I think he said. He says, oh, really? Well, you're a Christian then. And he goes, well, no, that's not how we talk about it in Lebanon, because there's a Democratic Christian party, politically speaking, in Lebanon, and we don't want to be identified with that necessarily. So we say, no, I'm in Christ. Mm-hmm. He says, that's the signal that we're genuine believers in Jesus. So, Rather than um, associated with a certain political party. Yes. Yeah, and in Christ is a New, a New Testament yeah, that's phrase the, by Paul. Yeah. The early writers talked about yeah. it, yeah. But along about uh, 1970, he co-founds, uh, actually is the, the first um, 
leader, really, of um, Regent College in Vancouver, BC, where one of us graduated from. Yeah, it wasn't twice. Me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not because it didn't stick the first time, but I got another degree. No, I got but, you. Yeah. So, but uh, and uh, that's where I met him in 1983, and uh, I, I've told this story too, I think, but to bring it all together. The reason I want—I mean, well—in those days, you uh, you got a little ticket when you when you registered to go to school in summer school, that said, "Please come to tea with Dr. James Houston," <laughs> and uh, so we would meet out at the picnic table out in the patio. Yeah, and uh, I got there early because I really wanted to poke around. First of all, about the Lewis stuff, but yeah. I was not in a good space. I was in the th- second year of seminary, something like that. Yeah, and I was ready to bag it. Yeah, so. Uh, I wanted to know his thoughts on that because I'd heard, read a lot about him in magazines. So uh, he got into that a little bit uh, that day, but he saw these other two gals coming that had been invited to tea, uh, women from uh, uh, back east. I, I, the, the cool thing about Regent in those days and still to this day, but it was there for the education, not just of clergy types or pastor types, but it was there for people who were in business or all kinds of walks of life to come and learn and study Christian theology and the Bible and then go back out to their jobs. Mm-hmm. And these two women were uh, pretty high up executives from the East Coast, I think. But anyway, he said, Dwayne, why don't you come to my office tomorrow? So I, I did. Uh, and he said, well, tell me a story again. I said, man, I'm in a dry, 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 dry church, and I'm not even sure I want to be a pastor. Uh, if that's what it means, you know, I couldn't last one year, let alone, you know, 40 years and something doing that. And he said, well, I want to tell you three things. I said, oh, okay. So I got out my little notebook. <laughs> he says, first thing I want you to know is you're not crazy. He says, oh, that's good. That's all right. That's right. Uh, he says, start. You're, you're concerned about real things, real things. I said, good, good. Yeah. Okay, good. No, real things. And, um, and he said, the second thing is, is you need to understand the cosmic significance of what you're going through. He said, okay, you're going to have to tell me what that means too. <laughs> he goes, well, Jesus is concerned about it, that sin has entered the whole cosmos. And uh, he's in that battle. He's working in it too. So the things that break your heart break his heart. He said, okay. And then finally he says, I want you to dig a well. I said, well, I moved an outhouse. <laughs> I moved an outhouse okay. on my internship and first pastorate. He goes, "No, that's not what I'm talking about." <laughs> he goes, "I think you should do what Jesus said, uh, and when he says, if uh, if you follow me and uh, truly follow my Spirit, you will have a well of water uh, welling up inside of you wherever you go. So even if you continue to be in dry places, you will uh, you will be it'll be an oasis because you'll bring a well with you." Mm-hmm. of the love of Jesus. And so, you know, that was sort of a defining metaphor for me the whole, sure. even to this day. And uh, he uh, he said, I think you should stay in school and do that. So that's what I tried to do. But but given all of this, you know, all the, he's, he's influenced thousands, uh, maybe, you know, tens of thousands, I don't know, pe- people. I mean, I continue to hear people, you know, how his... His ministry and his work has reached all around the world. In fact, when I went to visit him in 2017, he'd just gotten back from a trip with his son, who was a business um, uh, consultant of of some repute out of Vancouver. And uh, he had just gotten back from uh, Asia and Paraguay and uh, uh, circling the um, uh, Pacific Rim at 96. Jim Houston had come back from that. Wow. Yes. And teaching. Teaching, yeah. And, and I saw him around that time, shortly after that time, and he had no notes. He just pulled stuff out of his head and did an entire lecture down yeah. here in Portland to the pastors. Yeah. And so um, 
But he he did not want to write his his memoirs. In fact, when we walked back to the elevator that day, I said, "Hey, you know, you should really get your memoirs out there." Uh, I'm sure I'm not. I said, "I'm sure I'm not the only one that telling you this," but I just I just feel I need to say it. Uh, and he's and I said, even if it was just like me coming up and recording stuff like this, and you can just you know free for go free for all on it, uh, and then I could give them to somebody who's a, a real writer, and you know we could of your choice. And he said, well, yes. He said, I just don't want to do memoirs. Yeah. And he said, if I do, I want to have a, a series of humorous stories from my life. Nice. <laughs> and so uh, two years later, a memoir comes out. I'm sure it wasn't because I asked him. It's because everybody ha- asked him and he'd already been thinking about that. But um, in there, he gives five motives for why he... Uh, it, it, the, the memoir is called Memoirs of a Joyous Exile and a Worldly Christian. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gives five motives for wanting to do that. Uh, the first one is he wants to encourage others in life's journey, which is his whole life. Uh, secondly, all my life I was a tutor and mentoring students. I can vouch for, vouch for that. Uh, thirdly, he said, I, I want to help others go further up and further in. Where do you get that? That's a C.S. Lewis C.S. quote. Last yeah. battle, battle uh, with the Lord. And uh, the uh, double identity is another one, which we read in the cold open. The identity of being a steward here, but also preparing for uh, the, you know our responsibilities in heaven, and um, then f- fifthly, he said, "I I have experienced that I, you never get old if you are always learning new things." Nice. So if you want to get to one hundred and one and never get the, old, that's the key, man. Keep learning new things, <laughs> uh, and just yeah, as we. Um, some of those humorous experiences that are in the book and also that he told me it's one, one this I just got two of them here one of them uh, is that uh, there was this colleague at um, in Oxford when he was there you know his 20s and uh, first half of his 30s um, he would pass this colleague every single day on the street as he went to work every day they would call, and, and in Oxford you didn't make eye contact that was just you didn't you didn't be friendly. You didn't say hello. You didn't say please or thank you. You just walked by and didn't say anything. So for like, he said for 20 years, I walked by this guy. And then it was, I don't remember when it was. I think it was in maybe in the 80s. Uh, he, he's walking downtown Vancouver, BC, and he sees this guy across the street. He runs over and, and the guy remembers his name and he remembers that, that guy's name. He says, hi, how are you? He said, we never talked for 20 years. He said, I know, isn't that silly? He said, why don't you come over for dinner? So nice. he came over for dinner. Another um, sort of humor, this is one of the, the humorous uh, situations that sort of has a little uh, point to it um, in his book. He, he's talking about how, you know, he had to go to the right fellowship of, the, of his church. And if he went to the wrong one, people looked down at him there at, at the other ones. And if he didn't go to that, you know, so forth and so on. But he's going on this trip to the Cotswolds and things get botched up. And I can almost, you know, he's not really mechanically inclined, so I can sure. see how this would happen. But here we go. He says, another ridiculous event occurred the first Sunday I arrived in Oxford. A friend of my father was very concerned that I would worship at the, quote, right assembly, unquote. He had given me a moped so I could ride 60 miles from Oxford into the heart of the Cotswolds, where there was a, quote, right place of worship, unquote. It set off, uh, I set off on a snowy day, kind of like we did when we came to the spare room today, Ben. Uh-huh, that's right. Uh, on a, uh, 
snowy day, but the engine seized up, leaving me stranded in a small village with no church and no bus back to Oxford until evening. I had to keep warm in the local pub. This gave me plenty of time to determine that the following Sunday I would go to the, quote, open assembly, unquote, even though I was still afraid that it might be the seat of Satan. (laughs) Instead, I discovered a community of very kindly Christians enjoying a lovely and simple spirit of worship. Nice. Yeah. So that, and those, that just sounds just like him. I could have done the accent, but not like him. Yeah, please don't. Yeah, but... (laughs) But it sounds lovely and, and, and uh, what did he say? Lovely and simple spirit of worship. And that's the kind of person that he is. So what uh, I've learned some things from Jim Houston. I hope uh, I kind of alluded to that in the course of this. But um, brilliant as Jim is, it, I, I've learned that it's, um, whether you're brilliant or not, it's possible to be deeply spiritual and yet the most humble and gentle person I've ever met, just like, because uh, he is, he's humble and he's gentle. I never, have, I've seen him in situations where he easily could have retaliated because uh-huh. some pretty rude things were said to him. Uh-huh. He didn't. He smiled and gave a soft answer. Yeah. It's pretty powerful. Um, and yet in the midst of being this humble and gentle and uh, someone that uh, most of you have, us have never heard of, unless you've listened again to this podcast, uh, he's had an impact on thousands, maybe hundreds, maybe hundreds of thousands. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to be derogatory, but you could say he's like the Forrest Gump of the 20, uh, Christian 20th <laughs> century because he's run into so many of these people who have been influential That's in the true. movement That's true. Um, during this time. So uh, wish my friend Jim all the best, and I hope he makes it to 102. Great. Yeah. So I think that's uh, we got. I think so. I think it might be that time. That time for, for books and stuff. Books and stuff. All right, all right. Go for it, man. Just uh, go through your list. Um, yeah, I'm gonna. There's so many books here because he's written quite a few of them. Uh, I'm just gonna uh, point out Joyous Exiles. That's a mm-hmm. good one. If you've ever felt like you're disconnected from this world as a Christian or whatever, that's a good one. I'm also going to recommend, as a short book, I think it's only 150 pages or something like that, uh, not even that, 140, um, The Memoirs of a Joyous Exile and a Worldly Christian. Um, if you come across them, like in a used bookstore, uh, well, actually, they're still in print because Regent uh, Publishers uh, republished them, uh, but they're classics of faith and devotion series where he retranslated and uh, abrid- edited the uh writings of well when we did uh, bernard of clairvaux i used that book he uh, the love of god he, he edited that and there's john owens and jonathan edwards and uh, william wilberforce we used that when we did will wilberforce um and then finally his sort of his magnum opus uh is called transforming friendship and uh it's about our friendship with with god and how that translates and how to experience and understand the love of God in your life. And finally, if you want to hear more or um, want to uh, see what he's thinking these days at 101, because that's a rare chance, um, Jim Houston, J-I-M Houston is H, like the, like the city, H-O-U-S-T-O-N dot org. That's a Scottish name, uh, but jimhouston.org, no space. You can get on there and see his blog. Great. So, yeah. And he's still updating his blog. He is. He, wow. he has some help from his um, 
attorney daughter uh, who's a big time attorney in, in Vancouver and all of his kids kind of come around, I think, and help him. He's got his beautiful little apartment in this. They call it a private hospital up there, but really it's a nursing home. Sure. And when I went to see him last year, he, he said, I go to physical therapy every day. And I tell the <laughs> physical therapist, I'm breathing in kindness and I'm breathing out compassion. Because, yeah. you know, physical therapists don't deep breathe. Yeah, deep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm breathing in kindness. I'm breathing out compassion. <laughs> I said, what, what did the therapist say? He says, oh, he didn't say anything. He just looked at me funny. That's funny. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Jim. Great. And with that, I guess uh, we could say. I think we can. We'll be going now. <laughs>